Between the Lies podcast. Read. Between the Lies. Read, 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 read between the lies. Yeah. And welcome back to the Between the Lies podcast, where we deep dive into whatever wicked or warped subject we might find our way into at that given time. Today, we are going to deep dive into the Zodiac Killer, who, of course, gained notoriety in the late 1960s and has been a heavily debated topic in the murder mystery community pretty much ever since. It's intriguing because there are separate investigative groups located all around the country and world, and almost all of them have a different conclusion as to who the actual Zodiac Killer was. A Accompanying these conclusions, they all present an impressive collection of evidence supporting their given theory. Famously, a few years ago, people on the internet even joked that Senator Ted Cruz was a Zodiac killer, and I have to admit, even though I don't believe that theory, it was fun to joke about. But now that I think about it, I've never seen the Zodiac killer and Ted Cruz in the same room, so that's a little intriguing. But as always, I'd like to present you guys with a timeline of events just so we're all kind of on the same page, and then we could deep dive into the details as well as possible theories along the way. So we're going to get started in 1966. Now this particular murder has been debated back and forth as to if it was truly the Zodiac Killer's work, but in my personal opinion, there are too many red flags and too many circumstances line up to just go and ignore it. It seems like a less refined version of one of his later slangs. A lot of times serial killers will have earlier crimes they commit that are less polished in the terms of being more spur of the moment, or they make a few extra mistakes. Unfortunately, as for serial killers and regular people, it seems practice makes perfect. So in 1966, Sherry Jo Bates was a college student in Riverside, California. She had been studying in the Riverside City College's library, and when she exited said library, she got in her Volkswagen Beetle. Surely a sign of the times, but nonetheless. It wouldn't start, she noticed it wouldn't even crank or try to turn over. It's reported that while she studied in the library, a man in dark clothing was across the street, supposedly staring at the library. Keep in mind, this event would also occur around 9 p.m. when the library closed, so it would not be hard for someone in dark clothing to blend in even during the slaying itself. So Sherry Jo Bates notices her car will not start and unfortunately soon after is stabbed to death as well as having blunt force trauma to the head. It is theorized that she was kicked multiple times based on the state of her body upon the arrival of investigators. Now the scene was found as follows. Sherry Jo Bates was found to cease on scene with stab wounds as well as blunt force trauma to the head as I earlier mentioned. There was a Timex watch recovered on scene that was not belonging to Miss Bates. This combined with skin found under the nails of Sherry Jo Bates would confirm she put up a fight with her attacker. Whoever it was, she put up the fight of her life trying to save her own. I want to point out that military boot prints were found in the immediate area of the slaying as well. Those were estimated to be around size 8 or size 10 military boots, anywhere from 8 to 10. I'm pointing this out for reference because these specific boot prints will become a theme in the Zodiac murders, but we'll get to that later on. So like I said, witnesses earlier in the day had observed a male waiting across the street from the library watching the library in dark clothing. This was methodical for sure, but not in the method of killing, only in the sense that whoever murdered Sherry Jo Bates had been stalking her for hours. The actual cause of death and method of killing were more heat of the moment and filled with aggression. Not too much precision was used, otherwise the victim wouldn't have been able to put up such a fight. 
it simply wasn't as well calculated as the later tragedies that would be perpetrated by the Zodiac. Now, this crime obviously happened in 1966. It was not till 1969 when investigators in multiple jurisdictions started to draw parallels between the Zodiac killings and the murder of Sherry Jo Bates. This would remain just a hunch until 1971. On March 13, 1971, the Zodiac would pen a letter to the Los Angeles Times claiming responsibility for the death of Sherry Jo Bates and 16 other unknown victims. Now, this is a full five years later, so we are jumping ahead a bit, but it's important to outline this letter as it pertains mostly to the Sherry Jo Bates murder. This was not the Zodiac's first communication with police. I thought it was important to point that out. That would happen on July 31st, 1969, about a month after another slaying in Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California. The earlier letters did not include the Zodiac name and likeness as we would later come to know it. It wasn't until later that the Zodiac would name himself, complete with a target emblem that would become his ominous signature. The letter from 1971 confirming the Sherry Joe Bates connection goes as follows. This is the Zodiac speaking. Like I have always said, I am crack proof. If the blue meanies, he's talking about the police, are ever going to catch me, they better get off of their fat asses and do something. Because the longer they fiddle and fart around, the more slaves I will collect for my afterlife. I do have to give them credit for stumbling upon my riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. The reason I'm writing to the Times is this. They don't bury me on the back pages like some of the others. Now, first and foremost, I'd like to point out a few things I noticed right off the bat about this specific letter. Countless words were misspelled throughout the writing of this letter. So to a regular person reading it, you might think that the Zodiac or whoever wrote this specific letter is uneducated or unintelligent. But to the trained eye, it seems more like some of these words are misspelled intentionally to throw you off the scent of the true killer. In my personal opinion, I just don't see how someone who avoided investigators for so many years would make these simple spelling mistakes. The only other scenario I could think of was maybe the Zodiac Killer had dyslexia. I just don't buy into the theory that he was some unintelligent, uneducated being. That just doesn't make any sense to me. But nonetheless... So it was after these letters in 1971 that investigators were able to at least loosely refer to the Sherry Joe Bates homicide as the work of the Zodiac, but it technically isn't completely confirmed for a couple reasons. It's been said that the investigation by Riverside City Police later on would exclude the Zodiac, claiming that the murderer must have been someone who lived nearby. This may have been a strictly political decision as to not scare the citizens in the surrounding areas, but interesting. I've seen investigators deny serial killer involvement in local homicides in many different cases. It's generally considered to be in the best interest of the public to not know there's a serial killer on the loose, apparently, but I'd like to think many people would probably appreciate the info. But again, that's just me. Now, I know I got a little ahead of myself with the 1971 letter, but let's go back to that timeline and to the next Zodiac killing. This is actually the first official recognized Zodiac killing according to many people in the true crime community. Although, personally, I do believe that Sherry Jo Bates was also a Zodiac victim. This killing would take place in 1968 on December 20th around 11.15 p.m. in Vallejo, California. 
David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were on their first date at a local Lover's Lane in Vallejo, California. Now, for those of us who don't know, Lover's Lanes were locations in the older days where people, typically younger people or teenagers, would park their cars and spend time together, we'll call it. Most, if not all, parents in this day and age would not allow dates to take place at their house, so in turn, lover's lanes were ever popular in the 1960s and 70s. Here's a brief summary and an outline of the events that unfolded on that dark night, and then we'll dive deeper into the details. According to the police report, the victims were apparently approached while occupying Faraday's station wagon. Shots were fired into the vehicle in an apparent effort to force them out of it. Jensen would exit the front passenger door first, followed by David Faraday. Faraday was shot as he emerged from the car. Jensen was then shot as she fled on foot. And that's an important detail that I wanted to include, that Betty Lou Jensen was able to run away from the Zodiac Killer and reportedly get about 10 feet away before he fired the final shot that killed her. This will come up in different Zodiac killings, and we'll see how he differently approached it later on. And we'll get to the fact that, like I mentioned before, unfortunately, with serial killers as well as regular people, practice does make perfect, and you will see that with the Zodiac killer as his killings progress. This particular killing, to me, seems a bit more calculated in terms of comparing it to the Sherry Jo Bates murder. For one, the Zodiac elects to use a gun at close range. This could have been directly because of the prior scuffle that occurred during the Sherry Joe Bates murder. He elects to use a 22 caliber semi-auto pistol. He also reportedly orders them out of the car with a couple of warning shots, and then once out of the car and they are easier targets, he elects to open fire. Now, police narrowed down the evidence gathered to two 22 caliber semi-automatic pistols, but they could never fully confirm which exact gun was used at the scene. Remember, back then, they had limited tools in the terms of solving these cases as well, so you're going to see that affect each and every Zodiac killing along the way. Keep in mind that police have not received any type of letter of communication from the Zodiac killer at this point, so in terms of investigating this double murder as well as the Sherry Joe Bates murder, they're simply investigating them as individual homicides. This would mean they would have focused more on family and friends of the deceased, looking for a true motive besides a crazed lunatic who decided to kill for the thrill, even in his own words. But let's get back to that timeline and jump into the next Zodiac killing. This would take place on July 4th, 1969. Keep in mind that it would be a month later from July 4th that the first ever Zodiac cipher or letter was sent, so obviously we will dive into that as well. Now on July 4th, 1969, Darlene Farron, age 22, was with a man named Mike McGow. Again, I'm terrible with pronunciation, so bear with me. Mike McGow was age 19, and they were both at another local Lover's Lane spot. This would be in Blue Rock Springs, which again is located in Vallejo, California as well. So we see that the Zodiac is sticking to his roots and sticking to spots he probably knows. So again, they're at a Lover's Lane location, sound familiar to you by now. A car, possibly a light brown Ford Mustang or Chevrolet, pulled into the lot just a few feet away. A man with a flashlight exited the vehicle and approached them. There were no other cars in the parking lot, so the teens were thinking it was a police officer. The couple had their identification ready just in case. Without warning, the man began firing at the couple inside of the car. After five shots were fired, the man walked slowly back to his car. 
McGow had screamed in pain. At that point, the man returned and fired two more shots into the victim. Again, Mike McGow. It was at this point that McGow got a look at him. The man was white, 5'8 to 5'9, late 20s to early 30s, with a stocky build, round face, and brownish hair. No conversation between the victims and the man occurred throughout the crime. Approximately 45 minutes later, the Vallejo Police Department received a call from someone claiming his responsibility for the attack. He correctly identified the weapon used as a 9mm, and he also took credit for the Faraday and Jensen murders on December 20th, 1968. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the audio to that specific call that was made by the Zodiac Killer due to the time that these horrible tragedies occurred, but here is an audio snippet of a description of that phone call by Nancy Slover. She was the 911 telephone operator during this haunting call. She offers insight into the type of personality we will come to see through letters and ciphers by the Zodiac over the years. So let's play that clip and then analyze it from there. He spoke in a monotone. It's like he had rehearsed it or was reading what he was saying. He had a very non-emotional voice you know his first words were i want to report a double murder if you'll go one mile east on columbus parkway to the public park and i said yes sir we have a report of a shooting in that area uh i still need to get your name and your location and he said uh You'll find the kids in a brown car. They were shot with a nine millimeter Luger. And I also killed those kids last year. I got a very taunting, uh, scary type, creepy feeling from, from the call. And when he got to the end of his statement, Uh, It's hard for me to duplicate, but instead of just saying, if you read my report, it means nothing. But if you hear, you know, if you could have heard, I can't explain it as well as I still hear it. Um, You know, it it was from somebody who was really out there. Now, first and foremost, I just want to say that at this point, it's clear that the Zodiac is escalating. It's unknown why this was his first phone communication with police, but it's clear that he's craving notoriety at this time. He wants to connect the dots for the police. This could have been his assumption that police and homicide detectives would have already connected the dots on their own accord. Could it have been his frustration that he wasn't yet gaining any notoriety from the previous murders? Whatever it was, it was clear the Zodiac was rubbing his devious acts in the faces of investigators. This would begin a never-ending, it seemed, game of cat and mouse between the Zodiac and investigators that has cultivated the minds of the true crime community ever since. Now back to some of the details of the actual murder of Darlene Farron and the attempted murder of Michael McGow. A few things that stood out to me. So the first thing I noticed about this crime was the lack of warning shots. Instead of shooting at the vehicle and ordering them out as he did in the prior murder, he immediately opens fire on them inside of the vehicle. 
This stood out to me immediately because you'll remember in the David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen crime, Betty Lou Jensen was actually running away when she was shot and killed. It seems that again the Zodiac is learning from his mistakes. He didn't want the chance that his victims could run away for help. The only way to assure the victim's inability to escape was to kill them while still in the vehicle. The Zodiac was becoming more calculated from one murder to the next. Something else that's important to point out, like I mentioned earlier, is that Michael McGow would survive the attack and live to tell the story. Now, like I mentioned before, on July 31st, three papers would receive a complex cipher from the Zodiac with an eerie message accompanying them. The message along with the cipher would go as follows. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Friday 1st of August 69, I will go on a killing rampage Friday night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again, until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. The entire cipher was 408 letters, but was split into three 136-letter ciphers. Those three were sent to three different papers accompanied with the threat of a rampage if these ciphers were not printed the following day. All three papers would oblige, electing to not have any blood on their hands. It also didn't hurt that public interest was undoubtedly peaking at this time regarding the Zodiac. Therefore, printing the ciphers would assure more newspaper interest. Controversy undoubtedly creates cash. In the late 1960s, serial killers were not as prevalent, so public fear was higher in California as well as around the rest of the country. The Zodiac was basically forcing their hand and gaining the notoriety he craved so dearly. Now at this point, the Zodiac is not identifying himself with the moniker we would infamously know him as. We aren't sure what exactly inspired the actual name, the Zodiac Killer, but it would debut in a letter he would send on August 4th that same month. But regarding the cipher, it would be cracked just a few days later by independent investigators looking to assist the police. The cipher would read as follows. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow me down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. So here again we see an intriguing glimpse into the sick mind of the Zodiac. This is the first time he would proclaim his disconnected belief that whomever he killed would become his slave in the afterlife. It's quite clear that the Zodiac has mental health problems and just sees the world in a much darker tint than most. He alluded to killings being more invigorating than having sex with a girl. Now before this specific cipher was cracked, it was hypothesized that maybe jealousy may have been a main motive for the Zodiac. Was he attacking these Lover's Lane's locations because he was lonely and wished he had someone to take to one? After the 911 call, along with the cipher decoded and the ominous letter accompanying it, it is clear that the motive was shrouded in darkness and evil. The Zodiac Killer loved to kill and planned to continue. Now here is a letter that was received on August 4th that would further confirm the Zodiac connection to the murders. It goes as follows. Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to you asking for more details about the good time I have had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they'll have me. 
On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor in the back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and a racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly as to not draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown was an African American, about 40 to 45, shabbily dressed. I was at this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo police when he was walking by. When I hung up the phone, the damn thing began to ring, and that drew attention to me and my car. Last Christmas. In that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied it by saying it was a well-lit night and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light about 3 to 6 inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. Now, in this letter, not only does the Zodiac identify himself officially, but at the end of this long and cryptic letter, he provides the target emblem that would become synonymous with the Zodiac Killer likeness. Here, he provides deeper details into the murders in December, as well as on July 4th. He would continue playing cat and mouse with the investigators and papers by pointing out inconsistencies in the investigators' theories of how these crimes occurred. He even dismisses the fact that it was a well-lit night and points out the fact that he had personally attached a flashlight to the gun for higher visibility. Again, craving notoriety and craving more props for the calculated murders. He seems to want to let investigators know that he is smarter than them at every single turn. He is also totally disconnected from the fact that he has taken so many people's lives. Instead, he talks about spraying them like a water hose. This would point to the Zodiac Killer possibly being ex-military. It would make sense how he was so desensitized to death and killing in general. Could PTSD be what set him off in the first place? Before we jump back into the timeline, I want to circle back to the Sherry Jo Bates murder quickly. There were letters that were sent out six months after her death claiming responsibility for the crime, but none, in my opinion, that directly tied to the Zodiac. So for that reason, I am not going to read them on the podcast. The letter does say at the end that the killings would continue, but it seems to target women who are alone only. Again, because of that particular detail, I cannot confirm that these letters were sent from the Zodiac Killer, but they are worth briefly mentioning. Now let's jump back to that timeline and the next Zodiac killing. This would take place on September 27th, 1969. Cecilia Shepard and Brian Hartnell were on the shoreline of Lake Berryessa, which is near Napa, California. According to the police report, the couple was relaxing on a blanket at a remote location by the lake. Shepard noticed a man approaching them wearing an unusual costume and holding a gun. He appeared to be around six feet tall with a heavy build. The man claimed he was a prison escapee from either Montana or Colorado, and he needed money and a car to flee to Mexico. Hartnell would offer his wallet and car keys, which were not taken from the man. 
After several minutes of conversation, the man tied the couple with plastic clothesline and began stabbing them. After the assault, the man walked away casually from the scene. After several minutes, a nearby fisherman heard the couple screaming and alerted the park rangers. By the time the help arrived, Shepard and Hartnell had managed to untie their restraints. It took nearly an hour for the ambulance to arrive, at which time both victims were in critical condition. Just over an hour after the attack, the Napa Police Department received a call from a man claiming responsibility again for the stabbing. The call was quickly traced to a phone booth in downtown Napa and fingerprints were recovered, although it is hard to find out which fingerprints would belong to a killer considering it's a public phone booth. On the victim's car door, a message included the dates of the Faraday Jensen and Farrah McGow attacks and was signed with the Zodiac's cross circle symbol. There were also size 10.5 boot prints that were found on the scene that were similar to the other boot prints that have been found at the various Zodiac scenes, so that kind of all connects it together as well. Now, first and foremost, analyzing this particular murder, I want to point out that the method of killing changes from a shooting to a stabbing. The Zodiac killer approaches both victims with a black hooded mask and claims to be an escapee from a local prison. He eases their minds with this information and ties them up, making them easier targets. He then stabs the couple a total of 16 times, leaving them for dead. Again, changing his method of engagement, possibly learning from his prior mistakes. Knife killings are typically crimes of passion committed by somebody close to the victim. Considering it's believed the Zodiac chose his victims at random, we can conclude, again, that the Zodiac is a grade-A psychopath, for sure. He also inscribed the dates of the two previous confirmed Zodiac killings on their vehicle, as well as placed another phone call implicating himself. He is simply letting investigators and citizens alike know that he is the one in control. He is the one pulling the strings. The last confirmed Zodiac murder would occur on the night of October 11th, 1969. Here is an outline of the details of the murder, and then we can analyze it from there. Paul Stein was a local taxi driver in California. His cab was hailed at Mason and Gary Streets, with the intended destination being Washington and Maple. For reasons unknown, the cab ended up at Washington and Cherry Street, about a block away from the original destination, reportedly. Stein's wallet and keys were taken and a large portion of his shirt was carefully torn off. Bloody fingerprints, potentially of the suspect, were recovered from the vehicle. According to a police document, a pair of men's size 7 black leather gloves was also found on scene. Three witnesses watched the suspect from approximately 60 to 70 feet away as he wiped down the cab with a cloth after killing Stein. They called the police and described a white male, 25 to 30 years old, 5'8 to 5'9 with a stocky build and reddish-brown hair, wearing a crew cut, heavily rimmed glasses, and dark clothing. They last saw him casually walking north on Cherry Street. Unfortunately, the dispatcher mistakenly described the suspect as being an African-American adult, and as a result, when the patrol officers arrived on scene, they did observe a white man walking east on Jackson Street, but he was never stopped in question. The officers did get a good look at him, however... When the correct description of the suspect was finally broadcast, the officers realized they may have encountered him in the flesh. This particular murder sticks out the most to me because it differs from the method of attacks we would usually see from the Zodiac. He elects to shoot Stein in the back of the head from point-blank range. Like I pointed out, the police had searched the area but were unable to apprehend any type of suspect. 
due to the dispatcher mistakenly identifying a black male as the suspect. This most likely was confusing because the initial calls alluded to the suspect wearing dark clothing and that's how it got mixed up. For this reason, it is very possible that police could have walked right past the Zodiac and failed to apprehend him. I guess we could call that luck at its finest. Now on October 13th, 1969, another letter would be received from the Zodiac Killer himself, claiming responsibility for the Stein murder. He would include a piece of the bloodied clothing he had collected from Stein just to rub it in a bit more. The letter would go as follows. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Now, he does point out that the police didn't search the park properly, and that, again, could be because of not knowing the suspect's race or ethnicity, or simply because he feels they weren't thorough enough in their search. The last part of the letter, he proclaimed that school children make nice targets and that he may shoot out the tire of a school bus and pick off each child inside. This caused nationwide fear, especially in California. Say what you want about the Zodiac, but as far as we know, he never actually murdered any children, so even if my next claim is completely baseless, it does seem that even the Zodiac Killer has some type of standards, just not in his letters. My personal opinion is that him threatening the children was just another semblance of control for him and another way to get national attention all over again. The murder of Paul Stein was the last official Zodiac killing, although it is hard to truly tell how many there are out there. It is possible that some of the murders were covered up, as in the bodies disposed of in a way that they could never be found. Remember in the letter in 1971, admitting his Riverside activity, as the Zodiac called it, he tells police that they are only finding the easy ones. Part of me believes this is simply his way of misdirecting police and investigators at every single turn. The Zodiac letters will continue repeatedly until 1978, and I even saw some information stating they continued well into the 80s. I will not be covering the later letters because most of them are just the Zodiac or whoever penned these letters teasing the investigators again to let them know he's still around. There is also a high probability that some of these, if not all of them, were copycat letters, and they cannot be completely confirmed. In the interest of time, I will go over a list of the suspects I believe to be most likely to be the Zodiac Killer. We are going to start with Gary Francis Post. Now, Gary Francis Post was a painter with a military background. First off, the worry lines on the forehead of Post seem to match those in the sketch of the Zodiac Killer exactly. In the Sherry Joe Bates homicide, he was reportedly only 15 minutes away around the time of the slaying. He was said to wear a similar watch to the one that was recovered on scene and wore a size 10 military boot which would become a theme in the Zodiac murders as we know. A group of about 40 investigators with a long list of credentials have identified Post as the Zodiac but it has never been proven completely. A lot of the actual evidence against him is circumstantial at best in my opinion although it does make for a good theory. Next we'll talk about Arthur Lee Allen. 
He was also reportedly in the area of Riverside around the time Sherry Jo Bates was murdered. At the time Arthur Lee Allen was a local elementary school teacher in California, the Sherry Jo Bates homicide would occur on October 30th. Arthur Lee Allen would take the next day off, which would be the only sick day he had ever taken that year. Is it possible that he took the next day off because of facial wounds caused by the scuffle that occurred at the Sherry Joe Bates scene? Next comes the claims that Allen supposedly made to his friend at the time, Don Cheney. Now, Cheney would estimate these conversations took place on or around January 1st, 1969. Arthur Lee Allen had used the guise of writing a fiction novel and pitching his idea to his friend Cheney but the details would be eerily similar to the murders of the Zodiac. In these conversations, Allen would state, in the book, he would include a killer who liked to kill couples at random, someone who would taunt the police with letters detailing the crimes, someone who would sign the letters with the cross-circle symbol from his watch. The killer would call himself the Zodiac. The killer would wear makeup to alter his appearance. The killer would attach a flashlight to the barrel of his gun in order to shoot better at night. The killer would fool women into stopping their cars in rural areas by claiming they had problems with their tires, then loosen the lug nuts and eventually take them captive. Allen was also known to be fascinated with the concept of hunting people instead of animals. He reportedly had said it was more of a challenge since humans possessed a different level of intelligence that made it more of a challenge to hunt them. This would be eerily similar to a cipher from the Zodiac that was later decoded proclaiming that hunting humans was better than hunting wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. It has also been reported that Arthur Lee Allen was in possession of books that contained similar codes to the Zodiac ciphers that would accompany many of the murders. Arthur Lee Allen also wore a size 10.5 military boot and had experience with the Navy for two years before he was eventually discharged. Lastly, in 1992, Mike McGow, who you remember is one of the surviving Zodiac victims, was shown a photo lineup including Arthur Lee Allen. It was then he would pick him out from the lineup and immediately proclaim, that was the man who shot him and his then-girlfriend. On August 26, 1992, Arthur Lee Allen died of natural causes. Just two days after, the Vallejo Police Department secured search warrants for his premises in which they apparently found some very interesting things in there that connected him to the Zodiac, although they have remained tight-lipped to this very day as to what they have actually found. Lastly, we have Richard Gajkowski, who has some interesting connections to the Zodiac Killer as well. First off, Richard Gajkowski was a trained medic in the Army around the 1950s. Interestingly enough, medics were trained to tear parts of injured soldiers' clothing in an effort to stop them from bleeding which would connect him to the Zodiac as he has ripped clothing from his prior victims before. A vague but interesting connection for sure. He was said to be living about five miles within the area of the Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday murders at the time the crime was committed. At the time of the Zodiac spree, Gajkowski was known to take speed and LSD, which can very likely mess with somebody's brain enough to make them commit these heinous murders. Gajkowski was working at a local newspaper at the time, and their production day was Wednesday. Eerily, of all the Zodiac ciphers and letters that were ever sent, none of them were ever sent on a Wednesday, which would have been Gajkowski's busiest day of the week. Gajkowski also has deep connections to the last victim, Paul Stein. 
The Good Times paper, which he worked at, had a location that they accepted mail and submissions, which was reportedly only yards away from Paul Stein's residence. Paul Stein's sister would also report that Gajkowski would attend Paul Stein's funeral service. Paul Stein was killed on Washington Street, which would be the same exact street that Richard Gajkowski's cousin lived at the time. And get this, Stein was murdered on October 11th, which just so happened to be Richard Gajkowski's cousin's birthday, which would possibly mean that Richard Gajkowski would have been around that immediate area, although I cannot actually confirm that. Around March 13, 1971, the same day a Zodiac letter would be received connecting the Sherry Joe Bates murder to the Zodiac, Gajkowski would be admitted into a psychiatric hospital reportedly after going berserk and having a mental breakdown. He was then formally diagnosed with a mental illness and the Zodiac letters would stop for three long years. Lastly, Nancy Slover, who we heard from earlier regarding one of the Zodiac Killer's first 911 calls, would later identify Gajkowski's voice as the one she heard on that fateful night. But so many years had passed since the incident, so it's really hard to tell for sure. The more I look into this case and the possible suspects, I realize that with so much time being passed, as well as the lack of actual DNA evidence, we very well may never know who the true Zodiac Killer was. This is another unsolved mystery that I pray is answered in my lifetime for the sake of curiosity, as well as for the sake of each and every victim and their respective families. The Zodiac Killer files are undoubtedly the most deep and information-filled files I've ever looked into. It is truly impossible to include every piece of information that I have found throughout my two-plus week search. But as always, I invite you to take a look into this information on your own and make your own conclusions based on the evidence that's presented to you. Thank you guys, as always, for listening to the Between the Lies podcast, where we look for the truth and nothing but the truth. I appreciate all the feedback I've been receiving and everyone who has reached out to me to let me know they're listening to the podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Between the Lies podcast. Thanks, guys.